Today's Old Testament reading is from Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10 to chapter 6, verse 6. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by the owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. The New Testament reading is from Luke chapter 12, verse 13 to 21. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Father in heaven, thank you again for this time, and thank you for your word. Thank you that you give good things in life. You give us material wealth and prosperity, and these are good blessings from your hand. 
But we ask, Father, now for your Spirit's help that we might see them rightly in their context, that we might not devote ourselves to these things above and beyond you, and that in treasuring Jesus, you will help us and equip us and challenge us to use our finances in ways that glorify you and grow our joy properly. Father, this is a big and tough topic. Some of us may feel a bit defensive or um, uh, a bit weary as we hear it. We ask, Father, that you'd bless us as we think biblically what your Bible does say about the topic of financial security and where to find true satisfaction. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. I grew up in a blue-collar family. My parents were manual laborers. Each week, they would also purchase tickets for the lottery. I can still remember the jingle from the ads each week, lifting the tune from the Beach Boys. <clears throat> Wouldn't it be nice to win a million? Wouldn't have a care the whole day long. And wouldn't it be nice to win gold lotto, sharing everything that comes along? It would be nice, wouldn't it? It would be nice to have more money, to be able to care for ourselves and to have other, uh, and others we love, to not have to worry or be anxious. To it would be nice to have more money so that then we could be generous with it, right? But winning lotto isn't for most of us. In fact, actually, the odds are about 1 in 62 million, so don't do it. For most of us, the journey towards financial security is found in the higher-paying job or working long hours to secure your pay. But how much do we need in order to be satisfied? Have you thought about that for yourself? We all need money. We can't live off nothing. That's a given, but how much is enough? And how many of us think that what we need, that we need more in order to be truly satisfied in our lives? Over the past few weeks, we've been looking at the question of satisfaction. Everyone is looking for satisfaction in life, some form of contentment, some form of happiness in their circumstances. And today, we're looking at financial security, money. That's a tricky topic, not one we normally preach from, but as we go through the Gospel of Matthew over the coming years, uh, we're going to see, we're going to touch on it a, a bit more. Jesus does tackle it. And with a topic like money, it's easy to get carried away. There's so much that could be said. Last week at the Ignite Training Conference, I was chatting with people and I mentioned that I'm going to be preaching on money and financial security this Sunday. And I got 50 different applications from all sorts of people. Like, the topic is so broad and wide. There's so much that could be said and needs to be said. And today, however, I won't have all the answers to that. I'm not going to be giving you a financial plan for the next 40 to 50 years of your life. I'm not going to be comparing career industries or super funds. Today, our focus is a little bit more narrow. Today, the question is simply this. Can financial security give you satisfaction in life? Now, in the outline, you'll see uh, that point one is titled, Money is Good. Uh, in this point, I'm going to look at material possessions in general. You may remember last week, uh, Pastor Richard briefly referred to the Greek word mammon. 
mammon, the Greek word for money, wealth, and material possessions. It's all kind of lumped in together. And so let me walk us quickly through what the Bible says about why material possessions can be good. Well, first, we open up to the opening pages of the Bible in Genesis chapter 2. Here's what a description of the Garden of Eden. river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. See those uh, verses highlighted. Uh, here we should notice that God creates in this world gold, delium, and onyx, stones and metals of beauty and worth and value, and they are good. They are part of God's good creation. The creation is filled with the abundance from God's good hand, reflecting His generosity to His creation. So it's a little wonder then that the majority of God's blessings to His people come in the form of material blessings, the promises in particular. Take, for example, the, blessings for, uh, the promised blessings for obedience in Deuteronomy 28, right? Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the fruit of your cattle and the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in and blessed shall you be when you go out. Uh, verse 8, the Lord will command the blessing on you in your barns and in all that you undertake. He will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Uh, verse 11 to 12, and the Lord will make you abound in prosperity, in the fruit of your womb and in the fruit of your livestock and in the fruit of your ground within the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give you. The Lord will open to you his good treasury, the heavens, to give the rain to your land in its season and to bless all the work of your hands. And you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. You can see clearly from that quick sweep how material blessings from God are His good blessings for obedience to the law. If they loved God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and if they loved their neighbor in the same way, then God would pour out on them such abundance of material blessing, which also explains why poverty is seen as a curse in the same chapter. Right? Verse 17, cursed be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed be, shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. You notice that's the exact reversal of the blessings from before, uh, all the way down in verse 48. Therefore, you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst, in nakedness and lacking everything. And he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. Right, there's plenty of other references there as well, but you get the point. Poverty was a curse for disobedience. If you want to tease out that chapter a lot more, uh, go back to our Deuteronomy sermon series on the website. Jordan, our ministry trainee, gave a fantastic sermon on the blessings and curses of the covenant there. Now, to be clear, to be really clear, these verses are about God's covenant with His people Israel. Poverty in our world today is not necessarily a sign of God's judgment from these verses. These verses are about the relationship between God and His nation Israel, a covenant that said if they were obedient, they would be showered with blessings, but if they were disobedient, then curses would rain down on them. 
and part of that curse was poverty. It's, it's one of the themes through the Bible that poverty is not a good thing. Hear the words of Agur from Proverbs chapter 30. Two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. And notice here again that poverty is bad. Agur prays, Dear Lord, please don't give me poverty. Why? The first bit of verse 9. Lest, oh, sorry, the second bit of verse 9, lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. When you need to do whatever you can to survive, you will end up breaking God's laws and dishonoring Him. But also notice what Agur prays. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Poverty is bad. But so is wealth. Why? Verse 9. Lest I be full and deny you. See, when you have all your needs and your wants met, it causes you to quickly forget who God is, to forget how God has provided for you. Riches cause us to say, Who is God? Look at what my hands have created for myself. Look at what my hard work has done for me. You know, so often we ask for wealth, we ask for riches, we ask for our children to not be in poverty, but we ask them to be wealthy, but maybe that's, not a, maybe that's actually quite a dangerous prayer. Maybe it's a dangerous prayer because if they get it, they won't need God. Here's the point so far. Money and material possessions aren't bad. They, they are good. We, we need them to survive, and they are blessings from God. Poverty isn't great, but there's also an equal danger of wealth. Where does it leave us, though? We need money, but how much is enough? What are the dangers of working for more money? The biggest danger is that if we don't have a God-centered view of our finances and money, we'll just end up with the world's view. We'll end up just going with the flow. So over summer, over the last couple of weeks, uh, we were in Sydney. The kids got to go to the Olympic swimming pool, uh, Sydney Olympic swimming pool that the Olympians swam in. And one of the funnest things for them was the whirlpool, this round pool that has this kind of strong current flowing. And my kids are relatively you know, strong swimmers, but they couldn't go against the current. It was much more fun and much easier just to go with the flow. And that's what we will do if we're not intentional. We'll go with the flow of what everyone else does. Now, how does that look? How do, how do we know that we're just going with the flow? How do we know that we're just doing what everyone else does? Well, okay, so there's a common saying in Asian circles, right? You need to study hard, right? You need to study hard because when you do, you'll get good grades. And when you get good grades, then you'll get into a good university. And then you keep studying hard there so you can get a good job. And then when you get a good job, you'll be able to get a good home, and then you'll be able to raise a good family. Does that sound familiar? I remember years ago, a teenager uh, came up to me at the end of the service, 
Uh, he'd, been, he'd grown up in the church. His parents had kind of grown up in this church. But he said that's what he was taught. That's what he was taught. That's why he, that was his purpose in life, was to study hard and get good grades. You do all that so that you'll end up satisfied and content. Financial security will achieve this for you. Or maybe you're not Asian, maybe you're a little bit more Aussie. Well, think about the Aussie or the New Zealand dream, for those who have just come from across the sea, right? To own your own home, a detached dwelling on a quarter-acre block of land. What about the Singaporean dream, the five Cs, right? Have enough cash, own a car, have a fat credit card, own a condominium and a country club membership. What about the Malaysian dream, to live in Singapore? <laughs> Have I just completely offended a whole bunch of people then? Whatever your dream is, it's fueled by the same desire, to achieve financial security because then, then you will avoid hardship and you can enjoy in comfort. But here's the problem. Hardship isn't great. Look, the Bible, again, as I said, doesn't present poverty as a good thing, but the desire for comfort often fuels the love of money, or at least the love of things that money provides. Status, wealth, comfort, choice. The more money you have in life, the more of these things you will have. But then you'll want more and more. The heart can be so easily deceived. The heart becomes deceived. It's like taking a drug. It gets harder and harder and harder to say no. But don't just take it from me. Take it from the wisest man who has ever lived, Solomon. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 that Sarah read out for us. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who, he, who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of the laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. You see what he says here, because we live in a fallen world, because we live in a world stained by sin, the loving money ultimately means never being satisfied with it. Verse 11, when goods increase, they increase those who eat. The more you have, the more you spend. The more you earn, the more you live up to that standard. And that standard just keeps getting higher and higher. No wonder then in verse 12, Solomon says that the poor laborer sleeps better at night than the rich person with their full stomachs. Why? Because the wealthy person always wants more, and that desire will not let them sleep. It will not let them rest. Do you ever realize that FOMO, the fear of missing out, is purely a first world problem. You've already got your physical needs met, but now there's the fear that you're going to miss out on some experience or some possession. If you've ever experienced FOMO, then you know that you're actually quite wealthy. The problems for the wealthy then don't end there. Don't end with just wanting more, though. Solomon reflects on something that hurts him to the bone, something that is just utterly wrong, a grievous evil. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. 
and he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? And here Solomon sees a wealthy man who has poured out his riches into a bad investment and just lost it all. Have you ever seen anyone do that? Anyone who poured money into cryptocurrencies or non-fungible tokens, NFTs? If you don't know what that is, praise the Lord. Right? <laughs> or a thousand other bad investments that can have been made over the last few decades. There's a pain to it. What promised fortune is just gone what promised fortune is just gone in a few months or years. I recently read the story of a man from Dubai who was earning around $1,500 a month, which is not much money. But he had saved up $20,000, which is a fair amount. But he took all of that family's life savings and he poured it into cryptocurrency. He also then borrowed money on credit cards to pour into these investments. And then obviously a couple of years later, all of his combined investments are now worth less than $1,000. That is just painful. It's a grievous evil. And so Solomon, for Solomon, the pain gets worse with a big slap in the face in verse 16. Right? Just as he came, so shall he go. Death is the great equalizer. When you die, you can't take any of your riches with you. Some of us have seen the funeral hearse, the, the vehicle that carries the coffin, but nobody has seen a funeral hearse towing a trailer full of possessions. It makes no sense. You cannot take any of it with you. Financial security is actually so utterly temporary. Jesus picks up this idea when he shares his parable of the rich fool who builds a bigger barn and a bigger barn, thinking that he's able to build something bigger and then he'll enjoy life. I'm going to retell the story again, but I'm going to tell the kid-friendly version of it, the rich farmer. Okay? Here is a farmer who is very rich. The farmer is rich because his soil is rich and his corn grows faster than anyone else's and higher than anyone else's. And at harvest time, he has much more of it than anyone else. Lucky man. This year, he has, this year he has so much corn that his old barn can't hold it all. It is bursting at the seams. Uh, no problem, says the farmer. I will pull it down and build a bigger one. And then next year, I will be rich enough to take life easy. And so he builds a bigger barn. But when harvest comes around again, the new barn is not big enough. The greedy farmer has planted more corn than before and carrots too. No problem, says the farmer. I will build an even bigger, better barn. Then next year, I will be richer still, and then I can really enjoy myself. So he builds a bigger, better barn. But at harvest time, even the bigger, better barn is not big enough. Again, the farmer has planted too much corn, too many carrots, and a few cabbages as well. This time, the farmer says to himself, I will build the biggest, 
grandest barn the world has ever seen. Then I shall be so rich, I need never work again. The barn he builds reaches up to the sky. When it is finished, the farmer sighs a great big sigh. Tomorrow I will gather in the harvest, and then at last I shall begin to enjoy myself. I know, I'll have a party. But that very night, he dies in his sleep. Just like that, the birds eat his corn. The rabbits dig up his carrots, and his cabbages go to seed. The big barn stands empty, and the rich farmer never does get to enjoy his money. Poor man. Jesus says, how silly it is for a whole for a whole man to spend his whole life storing up riches for himself. To God, he really is a poor man. Don't you love how the biggest barn looks like a tombstone? And in a lot of ways, that's the point. Storing up treasures for yourself is essentially only building a bigger tombstone for yourself because you don't know when you are going to die and you don't know when you'll be struck down with an incurable illness and you don't know how much time you have left. Living for financial security cannot be the path to satisfaction. Money is good, but it's not ultimate. It cannot become the source of our satisfaction in life. There's just too many things that can go wrong. Loving money leads to desiring more and more. Saving up that money can be lost in bad ventures. Or you can die before you ever get a chance to use it. There's just too many unknown factors in life to make financial security the source of our satisfaction. And yet there's also a profound lesson in, and pointer in how we treasure financial security. Uh, think about it. Why do we treasure it? Right? We place our hope in it because it promises financial future security. We are anxious to attain it because it will calm our fears. We defend it to guard from losing it. See, seeking financial security in life is a job which rests solely on my shoulders alone. And that is just too much pressure for any one person to carry. Right, treasuring money is flawed, but the flaws show us how treasuring Jesus is infinitely better. See, when we place our hope in Jesus, we have our future secured eternally. We can live without anxiety about our future because our biggest fears are swallowed up by the resurrection of Jesus. And if we are, when we are defended by Christ because He guards all who are His, none of His sheep will be lost. See, having security in Christ means that all the pressure is on His shoulders and they are way more capable than mine. We can either treasure and serve Jesus or we will treasure and serve money. Jesus Himself said that. There's, there's no middle ground. Do not walk away from today thinking and believing in your heart that you are the exception to the rule. Don't walk out of here thinking, yeah, Jesus said you can't serve both God and money. Pastor Steve can't do it. 
Pastor Richard definitely can't do it. But I'm the exception. I think I can do it. No one else can do it, but I think I can. What we treasure will ultimately orient and shape our hearts and our lives. So how do we show with our finances that we are treasuring Jesus? Let me give us six principles which I've completely lifted from Randy Alcorn's little book, The Treasure Principle, which is just over there for $20. There are five copies. Right? Uh, invest in that for eternity. Yeah. Uh, you can buy that there at the bookstore. Principle number one, I'm going to go through his six principles and just briefly outline them. You can read the book to um, tease them out more. You can reflect on these and chat about them amongst yourselves as well. You can ask me more about what that might look like too. But principle number one looks like this. God owns everything. I'm his money manager, right? When we treasure Jesus, we learn that he is the one who owns everything. We are simply managers of his assets that he has entrusted to us. He hasn't given them to us. We are his caretakers. This is personally hard for me because it reminds me that the money I have is not my own. I I have to have the mindset that it belongs to him. And so any use of it needs to have his approval and go to honoring him, serving he and his people. Now, that needs a lot of prayerful wisdom. And I need to care for myself and my family. But then I need to work out how to steward the rest well. That's principle one. Principle number two, my heart always goes where I put God's money. Jesus says that where our treasure is, there our hearts will be. So if I treasure Jesus, then my heart will go where he goes. And that means also putting his money in those places. And so we also need to watch what happens when we start reallocating the money we have from temporal things to eternal things. To build treasures in heaven requires investment not in this world, but in the world to come to invest in ministries on earth that grow God's kingdom, to give to church in ways that are generous so that the ministries here can grow and more people can grow as disciples through it. Where my heart goes, my heart will go where I put God's money. Principle number three, the new creation is my home, not this old creation. We are citizens of a better country to come, an eternal and heavenly one, one in which there will be no lack, there will be abundance, a home that is not compensation for what we miss out here, but true consummation. It's, heaven is not compensation, it is consummation. Let me put it in a way that I think most of us can understand. Imagine that you've been invited to an all-you-can-eat buffet. You wouldn't fill your stomach with two-minute noodles all day in the lead-up to it, would you? Right? That's just crazy. Right? Everything we experience in this life is a preparation for the new creation to come. They are little tastes of what we will experience to the full. If I truly believe this, then I won't live for two-minute noodles. I will live for the feast to come. Principle number four, I should live for the dot. Not, I should not live for the dot, but for the line. So I've got this piece of rope here. 
Jordan's used this illustration a number of times. Okay, this is a really long piece of rope. It serves no other purpose in my life than this illustration. Right? Okay, so, you see this little, it's white rope, and I see this little black strip here. Now imagine this black strip is the timeline of your life. Right? And then your life in Christ will extend on to eternity. Why do we spend this much time here studying so hard to work that much so that we can enjoy that much and then forget the rest of this? That seems so short-sighted. See, our life doesn't end on this little back black portion. It extends forever. So our present decision, decisions should have eternity in mind. Will I worry about this today when it will not matter in eternity? Will I focus so much on this little bit of time here at the expense of eternity? Again, this requires wisdom to work out, a wisdom that is shaped by the coming eternity. Principle number five. Giving is the only antidote to materialism. Financial security is achieved only by securing it for yourself, keeping it for yourself. But again, it's not the path to true satisfaction. One of the ways that we can battle against keeping is to give, and to give generously. Uh, coupled with principle number two, giving to God's work helps my heart to follow. It really is the only antidote to materialism and hoarding. Giving is the joyful surrender to a greater person and a greater agenda. It kicks me off my throne. Sorry, it kicks me off the throne and exalts Jesus. Principle number six. Whoops. Principle number six. God prospers me not to raise my standard of living, but to raise my standard of giving. There are promises in the Bible that the more we give, the more we will receive. But the prosperity gospel gets this wrong because it thinks that it's more you give, the more you receive for yourself. God promises more so that we might give more. This is not a, the prosperity gospel. God gives us more money than we need so that we can give generously. These six principles are tough and profoundly challenging, and we'll adopt them and give generously if we truly believe that Jesus is what satisfies in life, not just financial security. And maybe you're here today and you're not as convinced yet. Is Jesus really worth treasuring? Is he really honestly that good? Whether you're Christian or not, maybe you've got that question in your heart, and I want to encourage you. Stick with us for the year. <laughs> Stick with us for the year. We're going to go through God's Word, and we're going to show you how profoundly great Jesus is, and that He truly is worth living for, and He truly is the most satisfying being. Treasuring Him only makes sense. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, you shower us with so many blessings from your great, gracious, and generous hand. We don't want to take that for granted, and we don't want to think of it as 
ours, for it all belongs to you. Help us to have that heart, to trust in your provision for us. Help us to be wise, that we know how to discern, how to care for ourselves, our families, and then to give generously, to give generously in ways that demonstrate that we really do treasure you, Lord Jesus, above everything else. Help this most of all to be true in our lives, to truly believe it in not just our heads, but our hearts. May our hearts be led towards you, and may that overflow in ways that you use our finances, the finances you've given us, to your glory and our joy. Lord Jesus, do this work in us, we pray in your beautiful name. Amen.